A Canadian Shame The Indian Act and Residential Schools By Darren Grimes Narrated by Graham Dunlop Copyright 2021, Darren Grimes. All rights reserved. Website, thecanadianshame.ca For my daughters, who inspire me to try and leave the world a little better than I found it. Forward. Long ago, according to a sacred story preserved by the Tlingit people, there lived a terrible giant whose most noteworthy characteristic was his appetite for the consumption of mortal men and women. This giant craved human flesh for his food and human blood for his drink. The story, originally written down in 1883, is recounted in American Indian Myths and Legends, published in 1984 and edited by Richard Erdos and Alfonso Ortiz, and can be found on pages 191 through 193. In the story, we learn that the giant has a special fondness for roasting and devouring human hearts. The monster is so successful at capturing the people in order to make them into his meals that a special council is convened to discuss the situation. Unless we get rid of this giant, the people said, none of us will be left. Erdos and Ortiz, 1984, page 191. We might think that the people would have called a council and determined a way to stop the giant before the crisis reached such a dire state that their complete extermination was imminent. But perhaps at first those who had not yet fallen victim to the giant did not want to face the obvious but terrifying fact that a giant with a taste for human flesh, human blood, and human hearts was not likely to stop devouring men and women until all of them had become his food and drink. In A Canadian Shame, Darren Grimes has collected and presented overwhelming evidence, which shows beyond doubt that a monster, bent on the complete destruction of the indigenous peoples of Canada, First Nations, Inuit, Métis, and all the other Aboriginal inhabitants of the land, has been devouring not only men and women, but also children of those cultures that this monster has been doing so for hundreds of years, that this destruction has been deliberate and systematic rather than accidental or unintended, and that lethal aspects of this horrifying feeding frenzy continue right up to the present day. In this book, you will encounter the record of the residential schools established in the 1880s and placed under the control of various Christian church organizations, where children from native families were taken against their parents' will and where those children were deliberately exposed to tuberculosis. This fact being substantiated by countless eyewitness accounts, including by conscientious doctors from previous centuries, who complained about what they were seeing, as well as being substantiated by photographs showing obviously sick children dining with and rooming with healthy children, some being forced to sleep in the same beds with children who already had the disease, and who were given substandard medical care, in accordance with written policy. We do not know how many died, because this genocidal policy was deliberately covered up, with government document destruction teams obliterating countless records at the residential schools, prior to their eventual closure, and its perpetrators allowed to operate without any accountability. But in recent months, massive numbers of unmarked graves are being discovered at the sites of the former residential schools. Unmarked remains numbering into the several hundreds of victims at some locations. 
the sheer magnitude of the findings, and the fact that they remain unreported and unexamined all the way until this very year makes it difficult to argue that the atrocity was anything other than a deliberate and diabolical policy, and one that was not isolated to a single residential school, but rather was carried out across the board. You will read of the ongoing work of Kevin Daniel Annette, who first became aware of the legacy of the residential schools in the early 1990s as an ordained minister in the United Church of Canada. His awareness sparked by the stories he began hearing from many Native men and women during the course of performing his ministry. When Kevin Annette began to call attention to the size and scope of the problem, he found himself similarly fired by the church without cause or notice in 1995. The first books he wrote exposing the horrendous history he was uncovering were taken out of print by his publishers. He subsequently made all of his work available online for free. What do the actions taken against Kevin Annette by the Church of Canada and by his publishers indicate about the continuing strength of this giant, which has already devoured so many? And in this present book by Darren Grimes, you will also find accounts of records of investigations into mysterious native deaths being destroyed during a routine purge of old files, as recently as 1998. In this present book, A Canadian Shame, you will also encounter the stomach-turning policy of involuntary sterilization of countless Native children consigned to the residential schools. A policy that was formerly passed by legislatures in Canada, allowing any inmate of any residential school to be forcibly sterilized at the decision of the school's principal who were employees of the churches running the schools. This sterilization was typically done by exposing the child's pelvic region to x-ray machines for extended periods of time. And this practice, which was established by legislative motion beginning in 1929, continued all the way up through the 1980s. You will also learn that Native children were used in medical experiments before, during, and after World War II. Experiments which included deliberate starvation, drug testing for a variety of reasons, including behavior modification, experiments to study pain thresholds, experiments for the testing of chemical weapons, and experiments involving different methods of sterilization. These tests were done at the residential schools, as well as at military bases and in special laboratories, and Indian hospitals run jointly with the United Anglican and Catholic Churches. Page 48. Clearly, such experiments are immoral, illegal, and constitute atrocious violations of human rights. They continued for decades after World War II, decades after the Nuremberg Trials and the Nuremberg Code, which was created in 1947, as a reaction to the human experimentation perpetrated by the Nazis. You will learn about the criminal institution which became known as the 60s Scoop which allowed children of Native families to be literally abducted by child welfare agencies and placed into foster families under new non-Native parents, a policy which began in the late 1950s, as some of the residential schools began to be shut down and which basically served as a new and decentralized version of the same culture-destroying policy, one which continued into the 1980s. You will learn about a history of different sets of laws for Native and non-Native men and women in Canada, including restrictions on voting, on movement, passes being required to leave reservations, even restrictions on rights to legal counsel, and the specific forbidding of lawyers representing natives in cases involving land disagreements. And you will learn that, despite the fact that most overt and egregious of these institutions from previous decades have now ended, 
The government of Canada to this day still fails to provide clean and safe drinking water to all of the First Nations reserves. Statistics show unequivocally that men and women of Indigenous descent suffer far higher levels of poverty, unemployment, incarceration, addiction, depression, and suicide than non-Native populations in Canada, undoubtedly as a result of the genocidal policies discussed above, as well as the ongoing failure of the government to properly provide infrastructure to serve all the people equally, as well as by the ongoing lack of justice and accountability for crimes against men and women of Indigenous heritage, which can be seen from examples given in this book. And while the genocidal measures described above, more of which you will encounter as you read A Canadian Shame, have been particularly atrocious in Canada, this problem is obviously not confined to Canada alone. Similar policies were of course carried out in the United States and throughout the rest of the Americas and stretch back to the 1500s. Indeed, as I write in my 2014 book, The Undying Stars, there is reason to suspect that the violence which would be inflicted upon the men and women of the Americas may have been part of some kind of standing order that had been given to the leaders of the expedition before they ever left the shores of Europe, pointing to evidence that Columbus possessed Portolan-style maps showing the location and outlines of the Americas before he ever set sail, and arguing that the wholesale destruction of the written texts of the Maya, the constant accompaniment of the priests in the entire procedure, and the careful recording of the results, again by the priests, suggests that something more was at work here. 342-343 The outsized role played by Christian churches of various denominations in the hideous and inhuman residential school industry of Canada, where we find inescapable evidence of deliberate medical neglect, along with rampant physical abuse, mental abuse, and sexual abuse as described by too many survivors of the residential system, as well as the criminal medical experimentation described above, the implementation of forced sterilization, and the cover-up of currently unknown numbers of deaths of children whose remains are now being discovered in fields of unmarked graves also leads to the inescapable conclusion that something more is at work here. If we read the evidence carefully, we see the indications of an implacable enemy which had already begun devouring hearts in other parts of the globe before it arrived on the shores of the Americas. Without minimizing the horror of the crimes perpetrated against the native population of Canada and the rest of the Americas in any way, we can note the undeniable fact that forced medical experimentation including forced sterilization, was also perpetrated on the victims of the Holocaust in World War II, as well as on thousands of men and women of all ethnic backgrounds, but almost always of the most exploited socioeconomic classes in the United States, prior to World War II and even afterwards. And we see hints of the same pitiless criminality in programs such as the MK Ultra Mind Control Experiments, which were carried out during the Cold War again long after the adoption of the Nuremberg Code. As you will see in the pages that follow, and as Kevin Annette has documented using accounts from survivors, German-speaking doctors came to Canada in the 1930s to supervise and direct some of the experiments carried out on children of Indigenous heritage prior to World War II, and even afterwards, including experiments supervised by suspected members of the Nazi SS during the decades after the formal cessation of that war in 1945, many of whom were brought to the U.S. and Canada during Operation Paperclip, 
The evidence contained in the pages that follow provides all the breadcrumbs anyone needs for reaching the conclusion that the pattern of horrific policies that unfolded in Canada was not the result of positive or well-intentioned ideas that just went wrong because of incompetence or venality. Nor can we conclude that all of the shocking crimes detailed in this book were just the result of racist ideas that prevailed at the time and have since been corrected. In fact, we see that the doctors from more than a hundred years ago who visited the residential schools within just a few years of their being created were already shocked and appalled at the medical neglect and deliberate exposure to tuberculosis that they were seeing on a widespread basis. And they took steps to try and inform the proper authorities in order to correct the situation, only to discover that the authorities obviously knew what was going on and supported the unethical practices. The trauma being inflicted on the native population not only upon the children, of course, but also upon their parents, was deliberate. It was the plan, not a failure of the plan. Those doctors in the late 1800s and early 1900s may not have realized it, but they were encountering a monster that was already busy trying to devour the whole world. Certainly the horror it was inflicting upon the First Nations and Aboriginal people of Canada was appalling, as you will see from the pages of this book. But these atrocities fit into a pattern of a world-devouring giant, which seeks to take the resources of all people everywhere, while devouring their flesh, drinking their blood, roasting their hearts for dessert, and casting what's left upon the rubbish pile. This monster will not stop until the men and women, like those people long ago described in the story of the Tlingit, are ready to actually admit to the existence of the problem, and to realize that what is happening is not going to stop by itself. Obviously, the indigenous people already know all too well what is going on. They know that a terrible giant has been mercilessly devouring the flesh and drinking the blood of their people for too long. But all the people of the world need to wake up to the same threat, because it will not confine its attentions only to Canada, nor will it only seek to devour the members of the First Nations. A giant that will perform the kinds of acts listed in this book must be seen for what it is. Everyone, everywhere, is in the position of the men and women in the Tlingit story, who declare that unless we get rid of this giant, none of us will be left. In that story, one brave member of the people takes it upon himself to confront the giant. Feigning death, the man lies in the path where the giant is sure to come by. Picking up the man and finding he is still warm and fresh, the giant congratulates himself and throws the man over his back, taking him back to the giant's lair. There, the man finds out where the giant's heart is located, in the giant's left heel. Taking the giant's own enormous skinning knife, the brave man plunges it into the giant's heel, causing all the monster's lifeblood to rush out. Like virtually all the world's ancient myths, from cultures around the globe, including the stories collected into what we call the Bible, this Tlingit story can be seen to be based on celestial metaphor. A giant who is defeated by draining the blood in his heel is undoubtedly based upon the constellation Orion, a towering figure in the night sky and one whose left foot, marked by the bright star Regal, is immediately adjacent to the long and winding constellation known as the River Eridanus. It takes only a little effort to see that we can envision an additional connecting line from the start of the River Eridanus, just above Orion's foot, and the star Regal in Orion, and thus to envision Eridanus flowing out to Orion's foot. 
And note that the Tlingit story specifies that it is the giant's left heel where his heart is located. If we envision Orion as a giant which is facing us, then foot closest to Arendanus and the foot marked by the bright star Regal would be the left foot of Orion, the very foot from which the blood of the giant flows out. It is no coincidence that in the myths of ancient Greece there is another giant who is put out of commission in a similar manner, the bronze giant Talos, which guards the shores of Crete. According to one myth, there was a screw in the heel of this bronze giant, and when that screw was removed, the ichor which animated the marvelous mechanical man all flowed out upon the ground, resulting in the demise of Talos. Also, I have argued in the past that the foot-washing scenes found in both the climactic chapters of the Odyssey of ancient Greece and in the Gospel texts included in the New Testament canon are also almost certainly based upon the part of the night sky in which the river Eridanus can be seen flowing out of, or at least adjacent to, the foot of Orion. In the Tlingit story, however, the victory over the giant is short-lived. As the blood runs out of the heel wound, the giant informs his attacker that he will never stop drinking the blood of human men and women, even in death. The man, in order to try and prevent such an outcome, chops up the body of the giant and throws all the pieces into the fire. The man takes the ashes and scatters them into the air for the winds to blow away. As the man does so, the cloud of ashes is transformed into a cloud of mosquitoes, and from the cloud of insects, the man can hear the giant's voice, laughing at him and saying, Yes, I'll eat you people until the end of time. Erdos and Ortiz, 1984, page 193. And so we see that the solution of the problem is not straightforward. And it is certainly not easy. It will require courage, certainly, as demonstrated in the Tlingit legend. But it will also require careful consideration. So that one form of the giant does not simply mutate into another. But the first step is to realize that the problem exists. It is not something that only belongs to the past. It is not something that just happened by accident or happened in spite of all good intentions. And it is something which threatens all of humanity. This book by Darren Grimes provides all the evidence that is needed for us to see it and to tell others about it. Because unless we start to see it and figure out what to do about it, none of us will be left. David W. Matheson Paso Robles, California, 18th July, 2021. Preface Canadian kindness and hospitality are attributes celebrated around the globe, many hailing it as one of the most free, fair, and diverse societies in the Western world today. But it is one with an ugly secret and an even uglier past. Recently, Canada fell short on a UN Security Council seat for a failure to act abroad on human rights. New Democrat Party NDP foreign affairs critic Jack Harris called the defeat very disappointing and said Canada's contributions to developmental assistance, peacekeeping, climate change, and indigenous rights were likely factors. What is more, we've been inconsistent in our support for human rights, going so far as to vote against almost every UN resolution upholding Palestinian rights and signing a new arms export agreement with Saudi Arabia, despite their egregious human rights abuses, he said. Harris, 2020. Furthermore, Canada was one of only four countries to vote no on the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in 2007, with 144 countries voting yes. 
Canada's co-conspirators in continuing international denial of Indigenous rights at home were the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. Though the declaration had widespread support from the international community, the Canadian government had this to say. In his address to the General Assembly before the vote, Canada's UN Ambassador John McNee said, Canada had significant concerns over the declaration's wording on provisions addressing lands and resources, as well as another article calling on states to obtain prior informed consent with Indigenous groups before enacting new laws or administrative measures. Article 26 of the UN Declaration states, Indigenous peoples have the right to the lands, territories, and resources which they have traditionally owned, occupied, or otherwise used or acquired. McNeese said that the provision is overly broad, unclear, and capable of a wide variety of interpretations that could lead to the reopening of previously settled land claims and existing treaties. Canada votes no as UN Native Rights Declaration passes 2007. The ironic thing about existing land claims and treaties is that they seem to matter little when a new highway, railway, or pipeline is required. Furthermore, under the Indian Act, First Nations people do not own their own land. Instead, it is held for them by the government, a little-known fact among the public today. For the first half of the 20th century, Canadian law allowed for uncultivated reserve lands to be leased off to settlers at the government's discretion, land that in many cases would never find its way back into Indigenous hands. Canadian law also dictated under the Indian Act that Indian reserves were a nuisance to expanding towns, and thus could be relocated at the government's sole discretion without the input of the Indian band, should a town grow to a population of more than 8,000 people in the vicinity of the reserve lands. Recent discoveries of mass unmarked graves at old residential school sites in Canada has led to a recent interest in the history of the schools and, by association, the other forms of legislated, cultural, and arguably actual genocidal acts by the Canadian government. The Indian Act still exists in Canada today. I am a registered Indian with the Mishkigogaming Band. This comes with an identification card and a registration number, as well as some benefits like access to free dental services and medical prescriptions. Some bands offer free tuition for post-secondary education as well. A common misconception is that Indigenous Canadians do not have to pay tax, but this is only the case if you work on a reserve. The Canadian government website hosts the Indian Act in its current form, as well as all the amendments dating back to the early 2000s. While the Act itself has been in existence for 154 years, the earliest, most atrocious versions of the legislation have seemingly been removed from the official website. It does still exist on some First Nations community websites, and it can still be downloaded from here. Kopiwadan.ca K-O-P-I-W-A-D-A-N.ca slash honesty slash Indian dash act. This book is an attempt to pull together the over 150-year history of the Indian Act in Canada and the damage it has caused to generations of Indigenous families across the country and which continues to do so to this day. From genocidal legislation and state-sponsored assimilation to apologies and attempts at reconciliation, I attempt to do so in a length that is not too overwhelming to the reader. What follows is a collection of quotes, legislation, reports, timelines, and articles that hope to bring the reader up to speed on a century and a half of the Indigenous experience in the Great White North. 
Here are just a few of the sections of the Indian Act or policies that were particularly oppressive and destructive to a people and their culture. Ban of religious ceremonies like the potlatch. Ban of Indians leaving reserves without Indian agent permission. Inability of Indians to vote. Introductory of mandatory residential schools. Denial of status of Indian women. Creation of reserves. Prohibition of sale of alcohol. Prohibition of sale of ammunition. Prohibition of solicitation of funds for Indian legal claims. These are only a few of the atrocities hidden within the Indian Act over its century and a half long existence. A document that is still legally binding at the time of this writing, 2021. This book hopes to preserve all the iterations of this historically important piece of legislation. At the time of this writing, several bands from around Canada have been finding the mass and unmarked graves of children nearby historic residential school sites throughout Canada, including but not limited to 215 bodies at Kamloops Indian Residential School, 109 bodies at the Brandon Indian Residential School, 751 bodies at the Maryvale Indian Residential School. This book hopes to serve as a brief historical record of the history of the relationship between the Canadian government, the Church, and the Indigenous peoples of Canada, in an effort to make sure that the crimes of the past are not forgotten so that the true reconciliation can be part of our future. Darren Grimes, Wabishki Ma'inga Definitions From the Indian Act of Canada, 2021 Number 2. 1. In this act, band means a body of Indians. A. For whose use and benefit in common lands, the legal title to which is vested in Her Majesty, have been set apart on or after September 4, 1951. B. For whose use and benefit in common monies are held by Her Majesty. Or C. Declared by the Governor in Council to be a band for the purposes of this Act. Band list means a list of persons that is maintained under Section 8 by a band or in the department. Child includes a legally adopted child and a child adopted in accordance with Indian custom. Common law partner, in relation to an individual, means a person who is cohabitating with the individual in conjugal relationship having so cohabited for a period of at least one year. Council of the band means A. In the case of a band to which Section 74 applies, the council established pursuant to that section. B. In the case of a band that is named in the Schedule to the First Nations Elections Act, the council elected or in office in accordance with that act. C. In the case of a band whose name has been removed from the schedule to the First Nations Elections Act, in accordance with Section 42 of that Act, the Council elected or in office in accordance with the Community Election Code referred to in that section. Or D. In the case of any other band, the Council chosen according to the custom of the band. Or, if there is no Council, the Chief of the band chosen according to the custom of the band. Department means the Department of Indigenous Services. Designated lands means a tract of land or any interest therein the legal title to which remains vested in Her Majesty and in which the band for whose use and benefit it was set apart as a reserve has, 
otherwise than absolutely released or surrendered its rights or interests, whether before or after the coming into force of this definition. Elector means a person who a. is registered on a banned list, b. is of the full age of 18 years, and c. is not disqualified from voting at banned elections. A state includes real and personal property and any interest in land. Indian means a person who, pursuant to this act, is registered as an Indian or is entitled to be registered as an Indian. Indian monies means all monies collected, received, or held by Her Majesty for the use and benefit of Indians or bands. Indian register means the register of persons that is maintained under Section 5. Intoxicant includes alcohol, alcoholic, spirituous, vinous, fermented malt or other intoxicating liquor, or combination of liquors and mixed liquor, a part of which is spirituous, vinous, fermented, or otherwise intoxicating, and all drinks, drinkable liquids, preparations, or mixtures capable of human consumption that are intoxicating. Member of a band means a person whose name appears on a band list, or who is entitled to have his name appear on a band list. Mentally incompetent Indian means an Indian who, pursuant to the laws of the province, in which he resides, has been found to be mentally defective or incompetent for the purposes of any laws of that province, providing for the administration of estates of mentally defective or incompetent persons. Minister means the Minister of Indigenous Services. Registered means registered as an Indian in the Indian Register. Registrar means the office in the department who is in charge of the Indian Register and the band lists maintained in the department. Reserve, A, means attractive land, the legal title to which is vested in Her Majesty, that has been set apart by Her Majesty for the use and benefit of a band. And B, except in subsection 18.2, sections 20 to 25, 28, 37, 38, 42, 44, 46, 48 to 51, and 58 to 60, and the regulations made under any of those provisions includes designated lands. Superintendent includes a commissioner, regional supervisor, Indian superintendent, assistant Indian superintendent, and any other persons declared by the minister to be a superintendent for the purposes of this act. And with reference to a band or a reserve, means the superintendent for that band or reserve. Surrendered lands means a reserve or part of a reserve, or any interest therein, the legal title to which remains vested in Her Majesty, that has been released or surrendered by the band for whose use and benefit it was set apart. Survivor, in relation to a deceased individual, means their surviving spouse or common-law partner. Notable players Sir John A. Macdonald First Prime Minister of Canada, architect of the Indian Act. There's a cartoon here, an 1888 cartoon from the now-defunct Grip magazine showing Macdonald and Indian Commissioner Edgar Dudney. Titled, Christian Statesmanship. Sir John. Indians starving? Oh well, they're not friends of Dudney. You know, I'll see that you don't come to want, though, Mr. Contractor. 
Note, Edgar Dudney was the Lieutenant Governor of the Northwest Territories. Sir John Alexander Macdonald was the first Prime Minister of Canada, the dominant figure of Canadian Confederation. He had a political career that spanned almost half a century. Macdonald was born in Scotland. When he was a boy, his family immigrated to Kingston in the province of Upper Canada. As the architect of the Indian Act, his opinion of the Indigenous population is important. Here are a few of his quotes on Indigenous people. To wean them by slow degrees from their nomadic habits, which have almost become an instinct, and by slow degrees absorb them or settle them on the land. Meantime, they must be fairly protected. Bigar, 1985, page 177. When the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents, who are savages, and though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It has been strongly impressed upon myself, as head of the department, that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence. And the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools, where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. House of Commons Debates, 1883, page 1107-1108. I have reason to believe that the agents as a whole are doing all they can by refusing food until the Indians are on the verge of starvation, to reduce the expense. House of Commons, Debates, 1882, page 1186. Duncan Campbell Scott, Deputy Superintendent General of Indian Affairs, from 1913 to 1932, and Poet. The Half-Breed Girl, by Duncan Campbell Scott. She is free of the trap and the paddle, the portage and the trail, but something behind her savage life shines like a fragile veil. Her dreams are undiscovered, shadows trouble her breast. When the time for resting cometh, then least is she at rest. Off in the morns of winter, when she visits the rabbit snares, an appearance floats in the crystal air, beyond the balsam firs. Off in the summer mornings, when she strips the nets of fish, the smell of the dripping net twine gives to her heart a wish. But she cannot learn the meaning of the shadows in her soul, the lights that break and gather, the clouds that part and roll, the reek of rock-built cities where her father dwelt of yore, a gleam of lock and shieling, the mist on the moor, frail traces of kindred kindness, of feud by hill and strand, the heritage of an age-long life in a legendary land. She wakes in the stifling wigwam, where the air is heavy and wild. She fears for something or nothing, with the heart of a frightened child. She sees the stars turn slowly, past the tangle of the poles, through the smoke of the dying embers, like the eyes of dead souls. Her heart is shaken with longing for the strange, still years, for what she knows and knows not, for the wells of ancient tears. A voice calls from the rapids, deep, careless, and free. A voice that is larger than her life, or than her death, shall be. She covers her face with her blanket. Her fierce soul hates her breath, as it cries with a sudden passion for life or death. Scott, 1926, page 55-56. to While somewhat less poetic, here are a few more quotes from Mr. Scott. 
It has always been clear to me that the Indians must have some sort of recreation, and if our agents would endeavor to substitute reasonable amusements for this senseless drumming and dancing, it would be a great assistance. Titley, 1986, page 177. I want to get rid of the Indian problem. Our objective is to continue until there is not an Indian that has not been absorbed into the body politic, and there is no Indian question and no Indian department. Scott, 1920, National Archives of Canada. The system was open to criticism. Insufficient care was exercised in the admission of children to the schools. The well-known predisposition of Indians to tuberculosis resulted in a very large percentage of deaths among the pupils. They were housed in buildings not carefully designed for school purposes, and these buildings became infected and dangerous to the inmates. It is quite within the mark to say that 50% of the children who passed through these schools did not live to benefit from the education which they had received therein. TRC Canada, 2015, page 375. Peter Henderson Bryce, Chief Medical Officer of the Federal Department of Immigration, 1904. There's a picture here, the story of national crime by P.H. Bryce, M.A.M.D., being an appeal for justice to the Indians of Canada. The wards of a nation, our allies in the Revolutionary War, our brothers in arms in the Great War. Peter Henderson Bryce became an ally to Canada's Indigenous people shortly after becoming the first Chief Medical Officer of the Interior in 1904, 20 years after the start of mandatory residential school enrollment. Tasked with Systematic collection of health statistics of the several hundred Indian bands scattered over Canada. Bryce, 1922. In 1907, he reported that over 25% of the 1,537 students had died from tuberculosis, with some schools approaching 70% death rates. Bryce's report blamed school construction and care standards for the much higher rates of TB, in the schools which went against the popular racial susceptibility theory of the time. Bryce, 1907. Bryce wrote that indigenous children enrolled in residential schools were deprived of adequate medical attention and sanitary living conditions. He suggested improvements to national policies regarding the care and education of indigenous peoples that would drastically reduce TB rates in the schools. However, all of them were rejected as too costly, and the report never went public. In 1921, Bryce was forced into retirement by government, and although he appealed the decision, he was ultimately denied. Shortly after his forced resignation, he published his earlier suppressed report condemning the treatment of the Indigenous at the hands of the British North American Act. Timeline of the Indian Act 1876 to present 1876 The Indian Act is created. Any existing indigenous self-government structures at this time are extinguished. 1880. Though not a law but a policy, indigenous farmers are expected to have a permit to sell cattle, grain, hay, or produce. They must also have a permit to buy groceries and clothes. 1884. Attendance in residential schools becomes mandatory for status Indians until the age of 16. Children are forcibly removed and separated from their families and are not allowed to speak their own language or practice their own religious rituals. The sale of alcohol to indigenous peoples is prohibited. 1885. 
Indigenous peoples are banned from conducting their own spiritual ceremonies, such as the potlatch. A pass system is also created, and Indigenous peoples are restricted from leaving their reserve without permission. 1886. The definition of Indian is expanded to include any person who is reputed to belong to a particular band or who follows the Indian mode of life, or any child of such person. Voluntary enfranchisement is allowed for anyone who is of good moral character and temperate in his or her habits. 1914. Indigenous peoples are required to ask for official permission before wearing any costume, traditional attire, at public events. Dancing is outlawed off-reserve. In 1925, it is outlawed entirely. 1918. The Canadian government gives itself the power to lease out Indigenous land to non-Indigenous persons if it is not being used for farming. 1927. Indigenous peoples are banned from hiring lawyers or legal representation regarding land claims against the federal government without the government's approval. 1951. After the Joint Committee of the Senate and House of Commons, R. examines the act again in the late 1940s. The bans on dances, ceremonies, and legal claims are removed. Women are now allowed to vote in banned council elections. Provisions that are still in place include compulsory enfranchisement through marriage to a non-status man, indigenous peoples who receive a degree or become a doctor, clergyman, or lawyer lose status. 1951 amendments now enact the double mother rule, which removes the status of a person whose mother and grandmother were given status through marriage. 1960, indigenous peoples are finally allowed to vote in federal elections. That is to say, for nearly a century, Indigenous peoples were denied the right to vote for the government that had stolen their land from them. 1961, compulsory enfranchisement is removed. 1969, the first Trudeau government announces its intentions to entirely eliminate the Indian Act with the White Paper. This draws great ire from Indigenous communities and the government abandons the idea. 1970, the Royal Commission on the Status of Women recommends that legislation be enacted to repeal sexist Indian Act provisions. 1973. The Supreme Court rules that Indigenous rights to land do indeed exist and cites the 1763 Royal Proclamation as proof. This translates into an actual victory in the following decade, when the Inuvialuit Claims Settlement Act comes into force in 1984 giving Inuit of the Western Arctic control over resources. 1978, Canada issues a report which acknowledges the sexist marrying out rule, which strips status women of their status and benefits if they marry non-status men. Sandra Lovelace challenges this rule in the late 1970s, petitioning to the UN Human Rights Committee in her quest. In 1981, the committee finds that the loss of a woman's status upon marriage violates the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. 1985. Bill C-31 comes into effect. The marrying out rule in the Indian Act is finally removed, but further distinctions in status are created, with additional issues stemming from this distinction. 
Reinstated women are given status while men retain status. Residential schools. In Canada, the Indian residential school system was a network of mandatory boarding schools for Indigenous peoples. The network was funded by the Canadian government's Department of Indian Affairs and administered by Christian churches. The school system was created to remove Indigenous children from the influence of their own culture and assimilate them into the dominant Canadian culture. Over the course of the system's more than 100-year existence, around 150,000 children were placed in residential schools nationally. By the 1930s, about 30% of Indigenous children were believed to be attending residential schools. The number of school-related deaths remains unknown due to incomplete records. Estimates range from 3,200 to over 30,000. A Timeline of Residential Schools in Canada Indian Residential Schools Chronology This chronology was compiled to convey, by historic milestones, how the Indian residential school system came to be, how it embodied attitudes of its time, how critics were dismissed, and how finally the deep harm it did to many members of generations of Indian children was exposed in the course of a reconciliation process that continues. While Canada has apologized and provided compensation, much of the damage to individuals and to First Nations culture can never be put right. This first appeared in Law Now magazine in 2014. A version updated to 2017 was published as Appendix 2 to 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act, Indigenous Relations Press 2018. This is essentially that version, so does not include more recent events, such as the tragic discoveries of graves near schools. Copyright John Edmund. 1755. Indian Department created as branch of British military to establish and maintain relations with Indians. 1820. This decade sees Anglican and Methodist missionary schools established in Upper Canada and Red River Settlement. 1842. Governor General Sir Charles Bagot appoints commission to report on the affairs of the Indians in Canada. 1844. Bagot Commission finds reserved communities in a half-civilized state. Recommends assimilationist policy including establishment of boarding schools distant from child's community, to provide training in manual labor and agriculture, portends major shift away from the Royal Proclamation of 1763 policy that Indians were autonomous entities under Crown protection. 1847, Dr. Adolphus Egerton Ryerson, Methodist minister and educational reformer, commissioned by Assistant Superintendent General of Indian Affairs to study Native education, supports Bagot approach, as does Governor General Lord Elgin, proposes model on which Indian residential school system was built. 1856. Quote, Any hope of raising the Indians to the level of their white neighbors is yet a distant spark. Unquote. Governor-General Sir Edmund's Head Commissioner to Investigate Indian Affairs in Canada. 1857. Gradual Civilization Act passed. 
males sufficiently advanced in the elementary branches of education could be enfranchised. They would no longer be Indians and could vote. 1861. St. Mary's Mission Indian Residential School, Mission, and Presbyterian Kokolitsa Indian Residential School, Chilliwack, first residential schools in B.C. established. 1862. What became Blue Quills Indian Residential School, Hospice of St. Joseph, Lac Libish Boarding School, established at Lac Libish, later Saddle Lake, then St. Paul, Alberta, first residential school on the prairies. 1867. Confederation. British North America Act, now Constitution Act, 1867. Establishes federal jurisdiction over Indians. Thus, while education is under provincial jurisdiction, Indian matters, including education, are federal. Fort Providence and Fort Resolution Indian Residential Schools established. First residential schools north of 60 degrees. 1871, Treaty No. 1, entered into at Lower Fort Gary. Quote, Her Majesty agrees to maintain a school on each reserve, whenever the Indians of the reserve should desire it. Unquote. This promise, repeated in subsequent treaties, though hedged in Treaties No. 5, reflected desire of Indian leadership to ensure transition of their youth to demands of anticipated newcomer society. 1876, Indian Act passed into law by Parliament. 1879, Nicholas Flood Davin, journalist and defeated Tory candidate, commissioned by Prime Minister Macdonald, also Minister of the Interior, to produce proposal for Indian education. Visits U.S. industrial schools grounded in policy of aggressive civilization. Produces report on industrial schools for Indians and half-breeds. Four residential schools already operated in Ontario. Mission schools planned for the West. This date generally taken to mark beginning of Indian residential schools. Though the system had early predecessors in New France and New Brunswick, and several schools were already operating. Duncan Campbell Scott, best known later as a Confederation poet, joins Indian Affairs at age 17 as copying clerk at direction of Macdonald. 1883, first industrial school established at Battleford, modeled on Davin Report. 1885, quote, Residential schools necessary to remove children from influence of the home, only way of advancing the Indian in civilization. End quote. Lawrence Vanquinet, Deputy Superintendent General to Prime Minister MacDonald, despite treaty promises, reserves lacked schools. Removal, often forcible, of pupils to residential schools is option chosen by government. 1890, physician Dr. G. Orton reports to Indian Affairs that tuberculosis in the schools could be reduced by half, measures rejected as too costly. 1892, regulations passed giving control over daily school administration to churches, Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, Methodist. In 1925, Methodists joined most Presbyterians and others to form United Church, which continued to run schools. 1896, Program of Studies issued, stresses importance of replacing native tongue with English. 
children forbidden to speak their native language, even to each other, and punished for doing so. This continued to be the policy for the life of the system. 1904, Dr. Peter Bryce appointed medical inspector to the Departments of the Interior and Indian Affairs. Again, 1904, Minister Sir Clifford Sifton announces closure of industrial schools, large urban institutions, in favour of boarding schools. They are closed over the next two decades. 1907, Dr. Bryce visits 35 schools, reports appallingly unsanitary conditions, microorganism bearing ventilation, high death rates. The almost invariable cause is tuberculosis. The appalling number of deaths among the younger children brings the department within unpleasant nearness to the charge of manslaughter. Honorable S. H. Blake, K.C., Chair of Advisory Board on Indian Education, partner in what is now national law firm Blake, Castles, and Graydon, to Minister Frank Oliver. 1908, Indian Affairs Accountant F. H. Paget reports school buildings in bad condition. 1909, Duncan Campbell Scott appointed Superintendent of Indian Education. 1910, quote, I can safely say that barely half of the children in our Indian schools survive to take advantage of the education we are offering them, end quote. Scott to Major D.M. McKay, Indian Affairs Agent General in B.C. The children catch the disease in a building, burdened with tuberculosis bacilli. Duck Lake Indian Agent MacArthur on the continuing prevalence of tuberculosis. 1912. Quote, in the early days of school administration, the well-known predisposition of Indians to tuberculosis resulted in a very large percentage of deaths among the pupils. Fifty percent of the children who passed through these schools did not live to benefit from the education they had received therein. End quote. Scott, in an essay to the authoritative 22-volume Canada and its provinces. 1913. Scott appointed Deputy Superintendent General of Indian Affairs, Deputy Minister, reporting to Minister of the Interior and Superintendent General Dr. William A. Roche. 1919, position of Medical Inspector for Indian Agencies and Residential Schools abolished in the year of the Spanish flu by order in council on the recommendation of Scott for reasons of economy. 1920, Quote, I want to get rid of the Indian problem, end quote. D.C. Scott to Parliamentary Committee. A Scott-instigated amendment to the Indian Act, with church concurrence, compelled school attendance of all children aged 7 to 15. Though no particular kind of school was stipulated, Scott favored residential schooling to eliminate the influences of home and reserve and hasten assimilation. Quote, I am afraid I cannot give a very encouraging answer to that question. We are not convinced that it is increasing, but it is not decreasing. End quote. Prime Minister Arthur Megan, former Minister of the Interior, on being asked whether tuberculosis was increasing or decreasing amongst the Indians. 1922, Dr. Bryce publishes the story of a national crime, being an appeal for justice to the Indians of Canada. The wards of our nation, our allies in the Revolutionary War, our brothers in arms in the Great War. He charges that 
For 1894 to 1908, within five years of entry, 30% to 60% of students had died. An avoidable mortality rate had healthy children not been exposed to children with tuberculosis. A trail of disease and death has gone on almost unchecked by any serious efforts on the part of the Department of Indian Affairs. His 1907 recommendations on tuberculosis control not given effect. He says, owing to the active opposition of Mr. D.C. Scott. 1923, residential schools adopted as official term, replacing boarding, 55, and industrial, 16, housing 5,347 children. 1932, Scott retires as Deputy Superintendent General after more than 52 years in the department. The anthologist John Garvin writes that Scott's policy of assimilating the Indians had been so much in keeping with the thinking of the time that he was widely praised for his capable administration. He embodied a fundamental contradiction. While a rigid and often heartless bureaucrat, his sensibilities as a poet were saddened by the waning of an ancient culture. Canadian Encyclopedia 1939 9,027 children are in 79 residential schools run by Catholic, 60%, Anglican, 25%, United and Presbyterian churches. Quote, 1939 was the approximate midpoint of the history of the system. End quote. John S. Milloy, A National Crime. 1944. Consensus develops among senior Indian affairs officials that integration into provincial systems should replace segregated Aboriginal education. 1951, Indian Act of 1876, with many amendments, repealed, replaced with modernized Indian Act, today's Act with amendments, conceptually similar to previous Act. 1955, Jean Lesage, Minister of Northern Affairs and National Resources, Department Responsible for Inuit, then known as Eskimos, gets cabinet approval for broad education policy in the North. General policy is to substitute settlements for nomadic life. A school is built at Chesterfield Inlet, followed by a copper mine and ten hostels. Some Inuit had formerly been sent south to Indian Affairs schools. Destitute Métis were sometimes also enrolled. 1969, Indian Affairs takes over sole management of residential schools from churches. 1969, Indian Affairs Minister Jean Chrétien produces assimilationist white paper to abolish Indian status, strongly opposed by Indian organizations. Alberta Indian Association produces Citizen Plus, known as Red Paper, in response. White Paper retracted two years later. 1971, Blue Quills School, St. Paul, Alberta, becomes first Indian-run school, following month-long contentious occupation by elders and others. 1972, National Indian Brotherhood, predecessor of Assembly of First Nations, produces Indian control of Indian education, advocating greater ban control of education on reserves, adopted next year by the government. 1975, six residential schools closed this year, 15 remain. 1976, NIB proposes amendments to Indian Act to provide legal basis for Indian control of education, 
rejected by government. 1978. National Film Board produces first film ever on residential schools. Wandering Spirit Survival School, about a non-traditional school organized by parents who had themselves survived residential schools. 1984. 187 bands are operating own day schools, half in BC, the rest mainly on prairies. 1993. Archbishop Michael Pierce, primate of Anglican Church of Canada, apologizes to survivors of Indian residential schools on behalf of the church. 1996. Gordon Indian Residential School, Punichi, Saskatchewan, closes last of 139 Indian residential schools in Canada. The report of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples recommends public investigation into violence and abuses at residential schools. Report brings these issues to national attention. 1998. Minister of Indian Affairs Jane Stewart responds with Statement of Reconciliation, acknowledging government's role, stating sexual and physical abuse should never have happened. To those of you who suffered this tragedy at residential schools, we are deeply sorry. Established Aboriginal Healing Foundation to assist Aboriginal communities to build healing processes with $350 million endowment. Express apology had to wait until 2008. 2001, Federal Office of Indian Residential Schools, Resolution Canada, created to manage and resolve large number of abuse claims filed by former students, resulting in 17 court judgments. 2003, National Resolution Framework launched, including Alternative Dispute Resolution Process, an out-of-court process providing compensation and psychological support for former students who were physically or sexually abused or had been wrongfully combined. 2004, Assembly of First Nations, AFN, report on Canada's dispute resolution plan to compensate for abuses in Indian residential schools leads to resolution discussions. RCMP Commissioner Giuliano Zaccardelli expresses sorrow for the force's role in the residential school system. 2005, $1.9 billion compensation package announced to benefit former residential school students. 2007, Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement, largest class action settlement in Canadian history, negotiated and approved by parties and courts in nine jurisdictions. Implemented. Of the 139 schools ultimately included in the settlement, 64 were Roman Catholic, 35 Anglican, 14 United Church, and the balance other or no denomination. The objective was reconciliation with the estimated 80,000 former students then still living, of over 150,000 enrolled since 1879. Elements are common experience payment to be paid to all eligible former students who resided at a recognized Indian residential school, independent assessment process for claims of sexual or serious physical abuse, establishment of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, commemoration activities, measures to support healing such as the Indian Residential Schools Resolution Health Support Program, and an endowment to the Aboriginal Healing Foundation. Survivors report harsh and cruel punishments, suicides of others, physical, psychological, and sexual abuse, 
poor quality and meager rations and shabby clothes in the schools, and inability on leaving to belong in either the Aboriginal or larger world, post-traumatic stress disorder, major depression, anxiety disorder, and borderline personality disorder have been diagnosed, and many have criminal records. 2008, Prime Minister Harper offers formal apology in Parliament for the Indian residential schools. In presence of Aboriginal delegates and church leaders, Indian Residential Schools Truth and Reconciliation Commission established June 1st, with five-year mandate, later extended to 2015. 2009, AFN Chief Phil Fontaine meets Pope Benedict AFN Chief Phil Fontaine meets Pope Benedict XVI at the Vatican. Pope Benedict expresses sorrow and sympathy and prayerful solidarity, but avoids apologizing. After a rocky start with resignations of original commissioners, Truth and Reconciliation Commission begins work under Justice Murray Sinclair, an Aboriginal Manitoba judge who became the province's Associate Chief Justice in 1988. 2010, Truth and Reconciliation Commission begins hearings in Winnipeg. 2011, University of Manitoba President David Barnard apologizes to Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada for institutions' role in educating people who operated the residential school system. 2012, Truth and Reconciliation Commission releases interim report, reviews progress, explains statement gathering and document collection process. Tells of degrading treatment, unwarranted punishments, and physical and sexual abuse by loveless institutions. Makes numerous recommendations respecting public education about residential schools and about mental health and wellness programs, especially in the North, and that Canada and churches establish a cultural revival fund. Notes mandate to establish a national research center. Over 105,000 applications for common experience payments were received by Canada by September 19, 2012 deadline. Over 79,000 were found eligible and paid, the average amount being $19,412. 2014, commission hearings in more than 300 communities wrap up. National events in Winnipeg, Inuvik, Halifax, Saskatoon, Montreal, and Vancouver were held as required by the settlement agreement, the final one taking place March 27th to 30th in Edmonton. 2015, the final year for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Related events occur. August 16th, Dr. Peter Bryce, 1853-1932, author of The Story of a National Crime, is honoured by the unveiling of a plaque in his honour at Ottawa's Beechwood Cemetery, the National Cemetery of Canada. November 1st, the plaque at Beechwood Cemetery honoring Scott as a poet modified to include mention of his role in residential schools. December 15th, the massive final six-volume, 3,231-page TRC report is released. The TRC also produced a summary in five other companion volumes, 2012-15. to 15. December 18th, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission closes its doors. As required by the settlement agreement, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation opens, with a mandate to hold and make accessible all the materials gathered by the Commission throughout its mandate. It is located at the 
Dysart Road on the University of Manitoba, Fort Gary campus in South Winnipeg, nctr.ca. The report looks to the future. Reconciliation is not about closing a sad chapter in Canada's past, but about opening new healing pathways of reconciliation that are forged in truth and justice. Assimilation policy was cultural genocide, the destruction of those structures and practices that allow a targeted group to continue as a group. At the heart of the report are 94 calls to action, under two main headings, legacy and reconciliation. Governments, educational, professional, and sports bodies, media, churches, including the Pope, the arts, and the corporate sector are called to action. Legacy calls are to redress the legacy of residential schools in the areas of child welfare, education, language, and culture, health, and justice. Under justice, an investigation into missing and murdered Aboriginal women and girls is called for and is underway. Reconciliation calls are more general, the most numerous calling for full adoption and implementation of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as the framework for reconciliation and related matters. This is controversial, and the federal government is equivocal. Other calls are for a covenant of reconciliation, a National Council for Reconciliation, church apologies, and a National Day for Truth and Reconciliation as a statutory holiday. Many non-governmental entities, including law societies, have acted in response to the report. 2016. The Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador approves a $50 million settlement of five class action lawsuits on behalf of Indigenous former students from Labrador who attended one of the residential schools at Cartwright, Lockwood, Northwest River, Yale, Makovic, and Nain in Labrador, and St. Anthony on the island of Newfoundland. The schools were established by the International Grenfell Association or by the Moravian Mission well before 1949 when Newfoundland joined Canada, but subsequently received government support until the last one closed in 1980. 2017, Prime Minister Trudeau apologizes at Happy Valley, Goose Bay, Newfoundland, to the Indigenous former students who attended residential schools in Newfoundland and Labrador and to their families, loved ones, and communities impacted by these schools for the painful and sometimes tragic legacies these schools left behind. Residential school students were not included in Prime Minister Harper's 2008 apology, having been excluded from the 2007 Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement in the province. John Edmund is an Ottawa lawyer with an interest in constitutional and Aboriginal law. He is a member of the Bars of Ontario and British Columbia, and served as Commission Counsel to the Indian Claims Commission 2003-2008. to Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.